0: Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. (laughs) This week we welcome an award-winning, a young award-winning stand-up comedian, uh, who's continued to stamp his mark on the comedy circuit, He's winning admiration and plaudits from uh, heavyweight folk like Harry Hill and Johnny Vegas and Milton Jones, which is terrific. I also want to pa- point out that he's the son of a dear friend of mine, a splendid comedian who, in my view, was the finest warm-up artist in British television. Uh, and, of course, Bobby Bragg. The legendary Bobby Bragg, who we all, most of us know and love, so let's try and find out if comedy's in the blood. This week's guest, behind the scenes, is Matt Bragg. Welcome, Matt. morning, Colin. How are you? I'm all right. I'm I'm pretty pretty dandy given everything. I'm just amazed that. I'm, st- I'm still amazed after, gosh, twelve episodes of this podcast now. First of all, that we lasted twelve, and also we've got the technology to be speaking at such a distance with such clarity, which I think is just wonderful. What amazes me, and I don't know why I'm amazed, is how assured
1: you are on the microphone already. You've only said <laughs> a few words. It? <laughs> it's um, it's weird to be holding one again. It's. I think th- this has now been by far the biggest break. That I've ever had since starting stand up by a long way because I, I think even after the first lockdown, which was what was that March last year, so April May June, I think my first outdoor gig back it was three and a half four months, and now it's God. been, I think start of November it was the last the last thing I did, so yeah it's it's really weird,
0: and and how weird is that because do you find that not appearing on stage, not having those balls under your feet, not appearing in front of people, do do you lose,
1: do your joke muscles lose their tone? I found, I was surprised at the first, I was terrified the first gig back because you just, its I've never done that before. And I think a lot of people are in the same boat because everyone, you've got to be, or the, the kind of assumption is you have to be working all the time. Otherwise, you'll get left behind. Everyone's going to keep moving forward. So, no one had ever taken that kind of break from stand up unless they either quit or they were so big that they'd gone on to do other things. So, yeah, it was, it, I was petrified. And actually, the, the first, this is absolutely true, the first gig back, I was so worried that I wouldn't be able to remember my stuff. I had notes all over, like front and back of my hand, both, it was everywhere. And I thought, well, at least yeah. they're there. So if yeah. I do freeze up, I can just look at my hand. And it was like going back to the early days. And I, well, I was, my name was called, I stood by the side of the stage, and the stage manager said, oh, just before you go on, just sanitize, will you? So I did that, sanitized, walked on. I'd lost 15 minutes. <laughs> and I went, oh, oh. but it's amazing. How that <laughs> panic, I suddenly went, oh, God. <laughs> but it just it clicked back in, you know, it's, it's a weird muscle memory where as soon as you walk out, you go, Oh yeah, I remember what, how this works now. And you just sort yes. of click back into it. And yeah, it was like, obviously it was, it was rusty and I'm sure it wasn't the greatest gig I've ever had, but yeah, it's amazing how quickly it floods back to you.
0: Did you find as well that the audience had also, Lost the memory of being an audience, so you're both kind of engaging in this, this kind of surreal event from scratch. You know, it was a collective. Oh, we got to get used to this again.
1: There was, I don't know. I think, if anything, from my experience of having done gigs since this all kicked off, audiences are better audiences because they they're so happy to be out and, and doing something. Yeah, and generally speaking, as well, they're if they're there, they love comedy. Yeah. Whereas before, you know, you might walk into a club at a weekend and you'll have, you know, a group of ten who were just there because it's someone's birthday and they couldn't think of anything else to do. There's another group as a stag do or a hen do, and they don't really want to be there. They want to be doing other stuff, yeah. and they're just kind of there because it's well, it's just what we do. But now, obviously, it's more expensive because the audiences are smaller. And yeah, people who are there have made a real effort to get there and they really want, you know, want comedy, which is amazing. Yes. And, and I suppose
0: when you start out, because the crowd don't know you and they've paid money to be entertained with an evening of comedy and they've been drinking. So when you first go out, as a new performer doing, I don't know, would you do open mic stuff or whatever? I mean, I want to know how terrifying is that?
1: It gets easier, the better the room gets. So at the very start, you know, quite unfairly, I suppose, the worse you are, like the, the lower down the ladder that you are, the harder that it is. Yeah. You know, even a good comedian, if you put them into that situation, it's difficult. Um, 'Cause a lot of it is it's not even you know that they don't know who you are. They don't know what live comedy is. Because there's been a few where you you know, a, a pub manager has thought, Oh, it'd be great to have an event on. Yeah. So they just stick a PA in the corner and just say, We'll just do comedy. Mm. And you turn and half the local they don't want you there. They're sat at the bar talking or whatever, and you are you are an inconvenience to them. <laughs> yes. So that's, I suppose, in that sense, it's not because I, I never counted any of those as deaths if they went badly. I think it's only a death if they're listening and they hate you. If they're not listening and they hate you, yes. And I kind of feel well, that's. There's nothing I could have done differently there. Okay, yeah. So
0: I've said this before on this podcast. Jay Leno always said that the more you do it, the more comfortable you become, and you have to perform and you have to perform until walking on stage is as comfortable as walking in your own living room. Is is that what you're finding?
1: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that's um, that's the, and that's what people talk about when, you know, they talk about finding your voice. Hmm. That nine times out of ten, y- your comedy voice is very similar to your actual voice, hmm. but it's such an alien concept to to walk out and talk to people and make them laugh, and you're the only one talking. You think, well, I couldn't, I've got to find something because, you know, just it feels so unnatural that you think it couldn't just be me that goes up and does that it's got you there must be something mm. and i you know i tried all sorts you know you try like you know like a high energy lee max one of my favorite acts you've mm. tried doing like high energy and and i just nothing fit mm. and then it it got to a point and i remember talking to, to mum about it at the time and i was a bit fed up with it all because i just couldn't you know it there wasn't consistency there you know you might have a good gig but then the next one you could do exactly the same and it'd just be but it'd be so so up and down, mm. Mm. um, and yeah, it wasn't until I kind of got fed up with it and let go of that, and I started being a little bit more closer to my own sort of personality, and then just kind of worked on that.
0: Yes, I understand that because an audience, there, it's it's like a, a kind of it's a living creature, isn't it? You know the strength of your stuff, and you know where your life po- your laugh points are because you've got laughs with at that point with the stuff over a month. So you know the strength of your material. But sometimes the audience is off. Maybe it's been wet outside. Maybe the, the, the car broke down on the way. Maybe there's a there's a bad atmosphere in the room. So it, it's forever moving. Do you gauge that as soon as you walk on, you think, Oof, this lot of hostile?
1: Yeah, you can definitely. It doesn't happen often. Because even, you know, there's been quite rowdy rooms, and it can surprise you when you walk in mm-hmm. and you go, Cause it's going to be hard work mm. and it ends up being lovely and vice versa. You know, something could look like a lovely room and they look like, you know, perfectly normal people. Yeah. And then they're animals. Yes. You don't know how it's going to go, but there's definitely, there was a Christmas gig I did last year where I was booked to, to, to close it and I didn't get on because it was at a holiday park and they, they pulled the entire gig because, It was just absolute chaos, and you could tell as soon as you walked in, you thought, "This is going to be hairy. This is going to be a riot." And uh, yeah, (laughs) didn't get past the middle act.
0: Yeah, it is extraordinary, isn't it? How different audiences react, and I suppose your act is being very, very laid back, very calm, and very assured makes you—I don't know—vulnerable. No, it doesn't make you vulnerable. But it makes your act kind of more vulnerable for the vagaries of a hostile crowd. Uh, I'm thinking if you're a rat attack, Joan Rivers, you can attack the buggers. You know, you can make them have it. Whereas you've got a lovely laid-back style. And do you suppose, uh, okay, gonna, I always blow smoke and I don't mean to. But do you suppose it's because you've got an inherent stage presence and charm, which helps win the crowd over? Um, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I think I've. <laughs> well, you see, you see, I would. I've I've studied your act, and you have a presence. You the, and what I think your assurance on stage does to the crowd is make them feel comfortable. They're not anxious for you because they think, okay, oh, someone who's actually in control of this situation. Mm. Is that a conscious effort that you've built over the years, or is
1: is it inherently in you? It was definitely like that's that that is me as a comedian. That that is naturally kind of what what comes out but I think that it's definitely a conscious thing yeah and it's something that you do have to kind of ride it a little bit because as you say mm. it, it it can make you quite vulnerable and if you're doing a you know a rowdy sort of working men's club style room to 200 people you know who've all been drinking for hours and if you turn up and you're you know just leaving these big pauses and that gives so much room for people to jump in mm. and, sh- and you do. So you do have to kind of look at the room and you, as you go, you kind of dial it back or, and then if it's a lovely room, like you're playing a, a big, you know, purpose built club and everyone's paid 25 quid to be there. You think you can, come- I can mm. really sit into this and enjoy it. And I know that they're going to listen because they're so financially invested in this, that they're not going to want to spoil it.
0: Yes. And, and the, the great thing I think about your act is that not only do you do conversational Observational flights of fantasy, which you've conceived, but you're not afraid to stick in a couple of two line gags, a couple of rat tat Well, so you you kind of walk that tightrope of either. I mean, okay, I would say preface this by saying you're either in the the Lenny Bruce camp of comedy, or you're in the Bob Hope, John Rivers school of comedy. But you've managed to plough your furrows kind of kind of down the middle, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think b- because of the style of it it's i mean actually it's it's made writing quite difficult because you kind of every time i write a gag you think this has got to be good because if you're doing mm. that laid back thing and it's quite slow and it might be quite drawn out by the time you get to that punchline that's got to be a brilliant punchline that's got to be enough to get you know in some rooms to get a, a round of applause or because otherwise if you make people wait that long and the punchline's a bit yeah then mm-hmm. they're going to start getting angry with you. <laughs> For, yeah. So it's, yeah, I know what you mean. It's um...
0: But what interests me as well is how on earth you go about, because you you mentioned writing, how on earth do you go about writing your stuff? When I write all my life, it was two line gags on a subject. You know, I need some jokes about Thatcher. Okay. There's mm. some jokes about Thatcher. Most, they're very, really longer than three lines. And I was writing for other people, as you know. But when you're writing for yourself, I, I can't get my head around writing the long-form stuff that you do and also writing for yourself. Uh, tell me about that process because I'm intrigued. I
1: mean, the honest answer is I wish I wish I could tell you a formula and say that's, that's how I do it because if I could do that, I think I'd, be, <laughs> I'd have a lot more material than I do. But it's kind of, it's how it tends to work is, and I've really noticed this during lockdown because I've, I've only been out a couple of times recently and I might've met friends in a garden or, you know, dropped off by girlfriend in London or whatever. And it's only ever after those times when my brain starts kicking in and I start thinking of stuff because you you need, you need some, you need stuff to work with to start with. Mm -hmm. And then, I'll get a couple of ideas. It tends to be in the car of just kind of one line, you know, or a funny idea, put it in the phone. And then I might sit down once, twice a week and just sort of have a quick run through the notes and just go, I think there's something in that. And then you might find one sort of one line joke and go, that punchline is so strong. Like that's a really good, you could build, you could build that into a bigger story So ultimately, you'll end up at that punchline, but you could have, you know, different branches coming off of that as as sort of gags along the way.
0: I I can only speak from experience where, and and my admiration for your style of writing, because you've got such a broad canvas to pick on. It's very, very hard to choose what area you think the crowd might be interested in or what interests you. I mean, I always said that my happiest brief is if someone said to me, give me some jokes about the Olympic Games, i go, Jesus Christ. No, I'm going to struggle with that because the the canvas is too broad. If someone said to me, "I need some jokes about Usain Bolt," or "I need some jokes about javelin," because it's a tighter brief, I can focus on those particular that minutia and I can explore that subject very intricately and, and wring as much comedy out of it as I can. From your point of view, you're going around life thinking, "Okay, uh, people are people crossing the road," I don't know.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I I understand what you mean, so because I've done a, a few bits of writing for a few people, you know, whether it's for for various sort of TV shows, and they say this is the subject, and then like you say, you can just mm. sort of get right into the detail of it, and so it's definitely yeah, it is hard when you've got the whole world to choose from, but I think that's probably the key is is kind of narrowing it down as much as you can to then try and but and I think in terms of you know figuring out what the audience will like, I think it's, it's kind of whatever you, whatever you kind of feel passionately about. If, if, you, if, if they can tell that you believe in what you're saying and it's something that really matters to you, then that'll come yes. across and they'll enjoy it. And the problem comes, I think, if you try and force it too much, you go, well, I've got, you know, I saw someone do a brilliant bit about, like say, crossing the road. And they love that because everyone crosses the road. So I should do a bit. Of, uh, I hate people crossing the road. but And then you try and write things off of that. And you'll find nine times out of 10, it won't work because you can, the audience can tell when you're not actually, you don't really believe that you're just kind of, and that's the thing, a big transition. You see, if you go to open mics, you'll see a lot of people going, well, I'll talk about this. Cause that's what I've seen people talk about. Um, but ultimately it has to be what something that you really, you know, you want to talk about. And that's what makes the difference,
0: I suppose the crowd can spot a phony i is is the answer and i it's it's very strange being comedy at the moment because it's easier to be a comedian, and I'd put easier in inverted commas because there are now so many opportunities for anyone with open mic hours or however long that is uh to get up and do their three minutes mm. I mean, anyway. I, I could get up and do a bit. You know, and die. I could get up and die my ass quiet, <laughs> Thank you very much. Anyway, any any bugger can do it. But comedy at the same time has never been more. Okay, I'm going to say constrained in the sense that I wouldn't want to write comedy anymore because I don't know what I'm allowed to joke about. Mm. Does that make sense? There are there are limits now. There are parameters certain guidelines that you can't cross uh, for fear of uh, invoking the wrath of the crowd. Mm. So is that a hamstringing thing or is that kind of focus even more helpful to
1: writing? I think it's, it's difficult because there's a lot less margin for error now than there would have been. And it's, it's cut. That's a good expression. Yeah. I guess it's, it's, it's partially to do with, you know, the current climate of everything, But also, you Mm. know, back in, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you were doing a a club gig, you might get unlucky one night and there might be a local paper reviewer in. Mm. And they might, you know, if you said something that you, you know, you tried a joke and it was, you you probably went the wrong side of the line. It might make page four of the local paper and forgotten about in, you know, an afternoon. But now you've got Mm. every single person in the audience has the ability to take what you said and interpret it their way and then Mm -hmm. post it wherever they like. Everyone's a reviewer. They can put it online. And so you, you're never going to get away from that now. And I think the the main thing is when you're writing or or trying stuff out, as long as you can always justify what you're saying. And if at the core of yourself, you're a decent person, I, I think, you know, it's, it's fine. If you're not a very nice person and you have a history of, saying horrible things then mm. you, it's going to be a lot harder <laughs> definitely
0: yeah, that's so interesting it's that's, that's stuff that i hadn't thought of i um comedy is very tough the longer you're in the business it doesn't get easier for example if you're the rolling stones and you haven't played sympathy for the devil for the millionth time to that crowd in rio de janeiro they're not going to like it. Mm. They want to hear stuff that you've done before. It's different for a comedian, isn't it? If you're a comic, you can't roll out the same old stuff. Oh, Matt, give us something you gave us in, in, in 1997. Yeah. You know, that never, that's never
1: going to happen, is it? No. no. Well, actually, weirdly, I think, I don't know if it's, I saw a, an interview with Jim Jeffries, I think it was. He's an Australian comedian. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he said before, you know, he's got some uh, iconic routines that kind of made him the sort of superstar he is now. And people would shout out at shows, you know, do the, do the gun control bit, do this bit, do that bit. And, you know, they, they all want it and they've paid the ticket money. So you can't, you know, you do the bit, but it's never Mm. what they actually want because they'll watch it and they'll go, yeah, that's the bit that I saw on telly, but they won't laugh again because they've seen it, but they think it's what they want to see, but it's not. So it's, yeah, it's a really tough and You know, I, I mean, I've, I've, can't really, and no one's ever asked to hear a piece of my material again. <laughs> so I can't really comment. <laughs> particularly not Your the people bit- that I live with. Go, oh, go on, do that bit again. <laughs> <Go on." laughs> it's very funny.
0: Uh, the, the comics I like at the minute... Uh, uh, Mark Steele. I love Mark Steele because of his sheer industry. He does a radio show where he visits towns around Britain and he, he does a whole half hour about that town specific. And I admire that enormously. Mm. Um, uh, Harry, I like, of course, Harry Hill, who cannot yeah. because of his sheer work. Milton Jones, the amount of material that he generates. Um, and that's, I'm thinking these are all performers who have a tre- tremendous work ethic. Yeah. Do you find that you sharing their work ethics an advantage? I'm thinking in terms
1: of, or is it easy enough to be oh, laid back? I'm okay. I, I'm I'm across this. It's going to be cool. I think, and I, I absolutely don't share their work ethic at the minute. But it is something that I'm working on because I, I think mm. if you don't have that kind of work ethic, you you're not going to get very far. Um and that's that's just the truth of it. These days. there's a lot of acts who are technically very good, really, really good, you know, to watch in a club or whatever. But unless they have that ability to turn over material, yes. you, there's just no progress in it. Because of again, the age that we live in, people see they're exposed to everything comedy a lot more. And even, you know, a lot of club gigs, they get recorded and go onto YouTube. So you don't even have to have done telly to have burned material. Mm. Because if you're on a bill. And people are looking to buy tickets and they look who's on and they go, oh, we'll just have a look on YouTube. See who that is. I mm. fret about this an unbelievable amount because you, you almost have to have something on the internet, but it's just, yes. it seems to be just such a waste because I agonize over making, you know, the routines that I don't drop things quickly because I always think mm. I, I could make that a bit better. I just need to keep going with it. And so I, I really, I hate dropping stuff you yeah, have to eventually yeah. but
0: I, I suppose there comes a point when you think okay i've wrung enough juice out of this subject and this is as good as it's going to get and um, what i love is is the is the sheer courage of trying a bit out in front of a crowd i guess when you write stuff you think yeah that should play but you never really know do you nobody really knows
1: no there's there's some bits that you yeah you write it and just go with well, that i mean that's going to be a new closer that's that, that's one of the best things i've ever written Love, and then you can go and try yeah. it out absolute silence for and sometimes it's yeah. you know there's absolutely seemingly no reason for it and other times you do, you look back at it and go oh, well that's yeah because that's in my mind i've got different contexts that i'm thinking of and they've not put that together or um but that's another good thing about the circuit now is, as hard as it is and like I say anyone can do it there's a lot more opportunity in terms of open mic nights where you know no one's built and no one's no one cares who you are. No one's going to remember your name after it. So you can basically go up there and do 20 minutes of stuff you thought in the shower that day. And it could be absolutely dreadful and you know, world keeps turning, nothing changes. So
0: yes, yes. I I understand Uh, my admiration for anyone who can stand on a stage in front of more than half a dozen people and talk to them and engage them and, and, and try and make them laugh as my undying admiration. I did it once. Uh, and it was a, a steampunk convention in Lincoln and John Naylor, the organizer said, do you want to come on and do a bit on this steampunk variety night? And I heard myself say, yes, of course, John, mm. realizing when I put the phone down, I don't know what the hell to do because I don't have an act. I, what am I going to do? And so I, uh, I spoke with Howard Huntridge. who's a friend of mutual friend of ours. Mm. And he said to me, well, why don't you do a uh, uh, play of cards right? You know, rig up a board and do, so, oh, no, yeah, I can do my, do my seven minutes doing play your cards right. And I died on my <laughs> ass. It was monumental. I was so good. I'd, it was well, John didn't last me back next year. That's for sure. <laughs> but it was very strange because I, um, I rigged up the board and I played the card, play your cards right. And I tried a few gags and I knew they were surefired gags because I, I'd, I'd heard greater comedians than me mm. of a certain age doing these, these jokes and they kind of went okay. They kind of went okay. Mm. But I came off thinking, no, I've been involved, involved with a small eye in cr- the creation of comedy for many, many years. And that's something I don't want to do again. There was about 300 in and I thought, no, this ain't for me. So that, that so my admiration for you and anyone who's prepared to stand up and do it is. It's just immeasurable that's the th- is, More you, you
1: wouldn't you didn't have the foundation of 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 doing it in front of you know 10 people and working on the you know working on the character and all that sort of stuff you know you, there's very few people who would just be thrown in in front of 300 people and, <laughs> and sort of told go and see what you can do
0: uh, yeah, I suppose. In, in mitigation, maybe, um, I was following Victor and the Bully, who are a real crowd pleasing rabble rising, rabble rousing, uh, band. Mm. Uh, and I was following Hannah, who's an exotic, fire eating, bikini clad dancer. So I mean, that, that after- is a
1: recipe for disaster, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> if that had gone well, I'd have been more surprised.
0: <laughs> yes. You know, and now please welcome Colin Edmonds and the crowd's going, what? <laughs> And he and his wife have put on a play your cards right board. What the fuck is going on here? <laughs> One of my favorite comedians, I've got many, many comedians. Am I allowed to call them comedians? I don't know.
1: Uh, I, think, I comics, think you are. It's, fit- yeah, I think it's more okay. of a, comedians, more of a casual term now. I think. Sure. Which is a-
0: yeah. I, I like, and I like American female comics. I love Wanda Sykes, mm-hmm. uh, who always makes me laugh. And there's a funny woman called Michelle Wolf. And there's a reason I'm telling you this because mm. I'm heading somewhere with this. Michelle Wolf, I find hilarious, but she's got a routine that I've, I've seen her perform, uh, about the Titanic. Mm. Well, now, first of all, you think, well, okay, the Titanic, you're, you're, you're making light in inverted commas of a subject where 1800 people died suddenly, mm. you know, but she manages to wring some comedy out of it in a most remarkable way. And it's all in the performance. She adopts a, a kind of middle-class woman's attitude, you know. So we're, we're on the lifeboat. And um how can you not see an iceberg? And the way she performs it is hilarious. And that's in a convoluted way to saying you're an expert on the Titanic.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, experts are strong. T- I, I've got just... St- two two kind of borderline weird obsessions and it with history and one of them is titanic stuff mm. um just that whole era just it, it just interests me and then the, the both both world wars i'm just an absolute such a mark for that stuff and it's i would love to i'd love to talk more about that on stage and i've tried but you do find that mm. you well that's what we're talking about earlier, when stuff you think's great and it turns out not to work. It's because I've tried it before and it's, you do it on the assumption that the audience has a a, a base knowledge of the 1918 spring offensive and you go up. Turns out not mm. not everyone knows what you're talking about there. <laughs> but if I do, I love stuff like that. And I think, um, yeah, I've not seen that Michelle Wolf bit, but I would, I'll definitely go and go and watch that after this.
0: It's, it's, I'm sure I saw it on YouTube or somewhere for sure. It's, it's, it is gloriously funny, but you know, we said, whoa, hang on a minute. We are joking Mm. about a major disaster of, of extraordinary international historical proportions. Okay. That's just maybe we've talked about being how comedy is different now than being a comic is it can be tough. Your, your style is. Very, what I would say, stylish in the sense that you've got a look. You've got a a mod haircut, a mod attitude, because you're a big fan of that scene, you know, Oasis and that kind of stuff. You wear very smart shirts, which to a certain extent flies in the face of a lot of the guys that I've seen who just shuffle on in a pair of jeans and an old T-shirt and start trying this with no real I want to say, use an old-fashioned word, show business flair. What you what you have is an understanding of show business. You know, you you do perform your stuff. Is is, is that a conscious effort, or is this something that's in the blood?
1: Yeah, I think it definitely helps, just in terms of because, like you said, I'm into all that stuff anyway. So how how I dress on stage is is basically how I dress anyway. But it was a conscious mm-hmm. thing that I lent into a bit more because I think you do need to have. You know, a, a look of some kind, just mm. to differentiate yourself a bit. You know, I, I'd, um, and I still do occasionally. I've got a pair of leopard print shoes, and I, all through early, early stuff, I wore them because people won't you yeah. know, they won't remember your name because there's just too many comics. But if you, if you have a good one, and then you know, people, people, you know, in the circles talk, and they say, oh, that guy, yeah, yeah I can't remember the leopard print shoes. Go, oh yeah, 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 him, yeah, yeah
0: oh and yes you kind of course of, I understand
1: and then it's yeah you know he's got the, the haircut and he wears the and it kind of it just sets you apart slightly and then also on the on the actual um, you know on the stage I think that was something that dad kind of swore by a lot which is whatever the audience how, however smart the audience is try and just be one one step smarter you know and I, I, mm. I, I do think that's important because it looks like you know, you've made an effort and you want to be there. And it's yes. kind of, again, it's it's part of, I suppose that's part of the style in terms of the power dynamic. If you want to get that respect and, you know, listen to me, then you've got to look yes. like you should be listened to.
0: <laughs> yes. And also, as you say, it's affording the audience some respect. And, and I think that's something that maybe they appreciate.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's, that's something that I definitely, that's definitely part of it.
0: Once again, I, I would contend that certainly, as you pointed out, something that sets you aside. And you you mentioned your dad, Bobby Bragg, mm. the uh who was a tremendous comedian and the doyen of television warm up artists. And I'll talk about warming up for television in a moment uh, and express my admiration for such a skill. For I, in my view, that's what it is. But were you aware of your dad being not normal in the sense that he didn't do a nine to five job? Uh, he went out at night and he constructed his stuff and he came back and he got up late in the morning. Um I guess well, I to ask my own question here. You didn't know any different because it was your family life. But what was it like being the son of a comedian? Yeah. That's the short way of putting it. What was it? What was it? Yes. Matthew, tell me, what was it like being the son of a comedian? <laughs>
1: um, it's, I think, I think you're right. I, I, I certainly think up to a certain age, there was sort of the assumption that everyone's, everyone's dad does that. And it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't extraordinary or, you know, that was just, yeah, that was just what, <laughs> what everyone's dad did. Um, Mm. And the annoying thing is, I, def- I definitely didn't appreciate, you know, I, I knew it was cool and I mm-hmm. liked, I liked the fact that, you know, we'd get to go and, you know, go to the studios like, you know, at, at Nottingham and, mm. um, and like the, the Birmingham arena and two gladiators and mm. all that. And it was amazing mm. being there. And as a kid, you just, it's just really cool. You know, you get your own little, I assume that everyone in the audience had a, had a dressing room to go back to. You... <laughs> you know why are you still what you go and have a can of coke out the fridge what you doing say you know why are you paying for it over there you can just go and get it from your dressing room and it yes so it, it was and I never appreciated that until obviously I got I got older and I would go with dad you know all the time when he was working I'd go and watch him work and then I think that was really when I was like this is you know this is really cool I like this sort of
0: and it, and it was that that inspired you to think, okay, I'm going to pursue this as a career.
1: I think so. Yeah. Um, it didn't really, I suppose it didn't really kind of kick up to the next level until after he, after he died. And mm. I think a lot of that was probably, you know, I've, I love, I love this business and I love, I loved what he did and I love being yeah. there and I, I'm not ready to, to kind of let go of that so mm. yes I'm going to keep it going
0: and, uh, yeah, I yeah because I think okay here's more smoke I think you got the legs I think you got the chops because I think you've got the right attitude but also it, you've got the advantage of a bit of a showbiz background so you you've got an understanding of the way show business works and how you operate as an individual and as a person and god bless your dad for for passing that on to you uh, you pursued comedy rather more adventurously more zealously after your dad died um did he ever give you any advice beforehand Beforehand, before before he died
1: uh i did um i did a i was working Doing the day job, and I and I was in Singapore for a week, and I remember I did an open mic night there, you know, on like the third night maybe, and uh, you know I, I said oh, I'm doing this tonight, and I remember him texting me, and he said, "Don't wait for the first laugh, or you'll miss your first, or you'll miss your plane home," <laughs> which there's plenty of gems, that, you know, which is. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of advice and encouragement it was always (laughs) you know it's like but the the more important stuff you know there wasn't necessarily it wasn't about kind of you know this is what you should talk about this is how you structure a joke this is obviously that kind of that came off just through you know being with him all the time you pick up all that stuff about how to tell a joke how to that's just kind of you just pick it up but the the really important stuff that he gave to me was you know um like he was never he was never jealous of anyone because obviously he was as a warm-up man you're always kind of in the shadows nobody you know outside Mm. of the business a lot of the time no one knows who you're You're behind the scenes you never get the credit you never and if you get good at warm-up like he did then Mm. you know producers aren't going to want to let you go so Mm. they're going to want to keep you there doing that job because you're good at that job so yeah, he, I agree. Despite that, he was he was never jealous, and he said, you know, always he was always genuinely happy for people. You know, if anyone mm. he knew got a, got the big break or they got this TV show, he was genuinely happy for them. You know, he'd call them up and, you know, and it it was always like that, and it was always just, you know, and the overriding thing is, I think, and what we found out, yeah, I mean, we knew at the time, obviously, but what what really came across after he'd gone was just how much kind of the crew, you know, and everybody around the industry, how much they enjoyed being around him and working with him as mm-hmm. a person, because he was just a good person to be around. And I think ultimately yeah. that's you know that's the best kind of takeaway and advice you can have really doing doing this job is that you've you've got to be a good person and you know people have to want to work with you. And funny kind of comes second to that really.
0: Sure. And that's the important thing, I think. I, I, your dad was loved by the people he worked with because the skill and the art of being a television warm-up artist uh is you've got to go on in front of that cold crowd who've come in, the coach broke down, it's wet, that kind of audience. And you've got to be funny because you've got to warm up their joke muscles. But you can't be too funny. You can't be funnier than the show. And that's where I think the immense skill of the warm-up artist uh, comes into play and and your dad was a master of that he knew exactly how to pitch it didn't he
1: yeah yeah he did it's like we were saying earlier you you've got to have respect for the audience but then you also if you're doing that you've got the added thing if you've got to have respect for the show and mm. the, the, the talent you know so he was he was brilliant at treading that line where he could get the audience right up to that point and then the show could just take yes it. Take it from there. And he was, he was amazing at that, especially, you know, when you consider the kind of, you know, sitcoms and shows that they could go on for hours and hours and hours. Yes. And he didn't need hours of material because he could just, you know, he could just talk to them. He could riff stuff, couldn't he? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That was the great thing. He could riff a bunch of stuff and, and feed off what was happening in the crowd. Mm. And it's impossible for me to, I always use this expression to overestimate the shows that he worked on. He was the go-to guy for Only Fools and Horses, you know, the greatest sitcom that the country's ever produced. And Sir David Jason wouldn't move without him. Mm. He wanted him there all the time, mm. which underscores your dad's great skill and legacy in in that form of entertainment in television. Uh, he was the go-to guy for uh, One Foot in the Grave. You know, David Renwick and, and uh, Richard Wilson always wanted your dad there because they trusted him and they, they knew that he would deliver the goods for them. And when you're at that level, Matt, surely, they're not going to suffer fools, are they?
1: No, no, I don't think. And I think it's it's possibly changed quite a lot since those days because those yeah. days, I think it, you're absolutely right, they, they needed someone who they could trust because they wanted to know mm-hmm. that whatever happens during filming or whatever. So I know in some cases, um, with people who weren't necessarily full-time warm-ups by profession they could pad out and they could do a little bit but a lot of the time you know people in the cast if there was a comic in the cast that they'd kind of come across and just yeah. help keep the audience interested and I think if you've got the trust of, yeah. you know that that you know that person can just look after the audience and they'll be fine and we can do whatever we need to do this side that's really important and I think I, I think it's probably shifted in recent times where it's maybe not as important now and it's whether I don't know whether it's because they can they can maybe rush through filming quicker. There's less sitcoms, so not such drawn I'm out sure. evenings. Um, but also, they just they just don't care that much anymore about, <laughs> about that. I don't know.
0: You talked about the length of the time, rather the duration that some shows took. And one of the shows which took. Oh, I can't describe how long it took was when friends came to Britain. And the warm-up artist that was chosen to entertain the most significant audience that I've ever heard of, you've got Fergie and David Renwick and the great hierarchy of British comedy sitting in the audience. The guy they went to was your dad. The Americans came over and they said, we want the best warm-up man in the business. And everyone said, go to Bobby Bragg. And so your dad was there with the... The Friends crew, the Friends cast, in front of that crowd, strutting his stuff—that must have been an incredibly proud moment.
1: It, I mean, I, again, I was—I was far too, too sort of young to appreciate that. I mean, to be fair, I probably—I still don't massively appreciate Friends in any way, but it's big, isn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but- oh my! It was the hottest it's show huge, yeah. in the world. Absolutely. We- I got a—I I got a phone call. The phone went. And this American voice said, Hi, uh, may I speak with Catherine Randall, please? Which is Catherine's maiden name, my wife's maiden name. And I said, yeah, who is it? He said, my name's Todd Stevens. I'm a producer with Kaufman, Crane and Bright Productions. Uh, Just one moment, Mr. Stevens. And Catherine said, who is it? I said, I don't know, but I think it's one of the producers of Friends. And she said, okay. And sure enough, it was. And your dad was talking to Todd Stevens, one of the producers of Friends, when he was being booked. And Todd Stevens says, we need a switcher. And your dad said, I don't know what that means. And he said, a guy who cuts the cameras. and uh, I, I, Oh, we call it a vision mixer in this country. Okay, I need a vision mixer. Uh, who would you recommend? And your dad said, well, you can go to the best in the business, which is Catherine Edmonds, Catherine Randall. And as a consequence of your dad's recommendation, uh, Catherine got the chance to vision mix friends in america now okay that's to say yeah yeah so yeah um it was now those sitcoms in america are recorded on panavision cameras on film Mm. six cameras but what the vision mixer in the gallery does is to cut those cameras For the crowd, the audience to see on their monitors, so they can, so they, if they can't see what's quite going on on the set, they can watch their monitors as well, you know. And that was Catherine's job, and she was enormously grateful to your dad for giving her that gig. It wasn't a terribly well-paid gig, but it was a long old gig. I mean, I don't think Catherine rolled in from work until about half past two
1: in the morning. Yeah, yeah, they were. It's it's crazy the difference, you know, with how how they do things in America and. Incidentally, as well, have you heard about when, uh, when Todd Stevens phoned, phoned dad the first time? I don't know if I've told mm, you. Go on. Is. No, so, I don't know this. Like you say, he's one of the biggest TV producers in the world at this point. And he phoned our house phone. And my sister would have been, I don't know, about maybe 10. And she mm-hmm. answered the phone. And he said, Oh, it's Todd Stevens. Can I talk to your dad, please? And so. Becky turned around and said, Dad, it's a guy called Cod Stevens. <laughs> no, sir. It's not Cod. It's Todd. <laughs> and we still, we, I mean, we still give a shit about that to this day. It's um... <laughs> quite
0: wretched. Oh, Cod God, Stevens. So yeah, just wonderful. Yeah. Oh,
1: from the, the innocence of babes. Oh, I just, it's wonderful. But yeah, it was, that was a long, long, long gig that, yeah. Because that was the, that was one of the, I think one of the times that, dad made the paper was because they were like they were the audience were in the studio for it was a ridiculous I think they had been queuing up since kind of mid-morning and the show didn't start until about eight nine o'clock so they had been out all day and it was ticking over like you know one two o'clock in the morning and uh so yeah so that was when dad he everyone was complaining about being hungry and thirsty and all that so he phoned up Domino's and ordered like 200 pizzas (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you should have seen the bloke on the moment I remember that story <laughs> that was his old gag on
0: that one. <laughs> so, but, but, but what an incredible experience and and of course Todd Stevens was quite right in, in, in um, following the recommendations that he was offered because the best person for your dad at that time the best person for that shirt that time was your dad because no one else could have kept that crowd uh, even tempered for yeah. seven hours of recording you know, so once again, you know, I guess if you if you go to the best, you know, if, you, if you're making the best, you go to the best, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, so uh,
0: I mean, I would say that, that Harry Hill, the great Harry Hill, Frank Skinner, mm. um, comedians. I would say of the next half generation along, they always found your dad the go-to guy, didn't they as well? well which also says something else about your dad's style of comedy.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah it's weird it was all the way along kind of it was yeah from i think the first show he did was open all hours the original was you know ronnie barker and david jason and then all the way up until um god i don't even but everything along the way into the 2000s Mm. including yeah like you say with frank skinner with Badil and skinner unplanned um yes and frank's chat show when he did that yeah it was everything along the way so it's i I suppose it comes back to what you're saying at the start about it's just that making people feel at ease so it's not even necessarily about the comedy what it's if you've got that kind of that style and that ability to make people feel comfortable then it's it's the perfect gig for you isn't it really another significant moment uh, which i
0: witnessed was when uh, bob munkhouse was hosting the national lottery live and your dad always used to warm up for bob yeah. uh, your dad was bob's go-to guy and the lottery machine broke down, and so it was decided that the although the draw couldn't be made during the live show, that the BBC would play out Casualty, and then Bob would come back and finish the draw, you know, after Casualty. But it did mean that your your dad and Bob Monkhouse had to tickle the crowd's fancy for that hour during Casualty, and. We've got that, I, I remember giving your dad, uh, a, a VHS probably of, of that, uh, that performance that your dad gave with Bob Monkhouse during the, I'm trying to get Bob off. I'm saying, you know, we need to talk about what the hell you are going to do? Cause I've got some stuff about Mystic Meg and, and shit like that, but I, I need your approval. Uh, but uh, Bob, Bob Monkhouse wanted to be out there with your dad cause they're getting screams off that crowd, mm. you know. And, and, and Bob Michaels was getting the taste of working with your dad. And I remember your dad saying that was one of his, that was one of his proudest moments. Yeah. So once again, I suppose it squares with the fact that you've got to be a comfortable comedian in your own right to then be
1: able to pr- progress to entertaining a television crowd. Does it just with that, with dad working with Bob, you know, when, cause it happened a few times when the two of them were out there doing bits together. And it's one of the the most brilliant, improvised gags I've ever heard it was um it was it wasn't the lottery it was a game show what was the was it Oh, the sixty four thousand dollar question sixty four thousand dollar question that was Do it Do you remember that yeah yeah so I mean obviously I was too young I wasn't there but dad's told the story and it's so good but he he was stood doing the warm-up and there was a break or whatever and he got Bob out to you know come and talk to the audience and and dad said you know you've been sort of, you've always been asking the questions, but now, you know, we're going to turn the tables. So for $64,000, it's a two-part question. First part, who built the pyramids? So Bob said, it was, uh, the Egyptians. And that's great well, the second part of the question. Who was the site foreman? And obviously <laughs> that got a huge laugh. And then Bob yes. Bob said, day shift or night shift. Ah, And it was just yes. like, it, it's just perfect, isn't it? It's so
0: it's good. Boom. It's one of those boom moments, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah,
0: it, it, It's it's that behind-the-scenes stuff, is, which is what I guess this podcast is all about. It's, it's stuff that, they, that an audience is unaware of. It's the stuff that goes on off-camera, which I've always found fascinating because I've been always off-camera. And what was fascinating for me was to see your dad, who, let's be candid, was not the fittest person in the world. He 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 didn't look fit in the sense that he carried his weight with immense style. But there's no doubt about it, he, he was a heavy guy. And I love the fact that he warmed up gladiators and made such a brilliant job of it for two reasons. Not only was he, he came as a big guy, with those broad chested, narrow, narrow hipped guys and, and, and those fantastic um gymnast girls. But he was actually warming up 5,000 people in the National Indoor Arena. Yeah. You had to – you were there because you were – although you were younger, you would have seen this. Mm. But I, I – I oh, God, you had to be there to see Bobby Bragg warm up the National Indoor Arena. It was brilliant, wasn't it?
1: Oh, it's it's incredible. And when you look back at it now, it's it is incredible. I mean, yeah, not least because you see all the, all the gladiators, you know, in a line – and then, uh, and then Dad on the end in the same tracksuit, but yes. just <laughs> yes. very different yes. stature. It was it's yeah. brilliant. But he was to hold a crowd of that size is just amazing. You know, it never sh- there was never any worry about that, or and it was just like any other gig. You know, rather than three hundred people in a studio, it's five thousand in an arena, and it didn't make a difference. You know, whether it's three hundred or five thousand, it was he could do it and. I think there was there was one. He they, they'd for the recording. He used to do like a, a, a walk round of the course. So he'd do you know the final, the final kind of course. oh the eliminator
0: yeah yeah the eliminator
1: yeah. and he he'd always do the same you know he'd go and then he'd get to the Travelator. and you know obviously there escalators they sort of they're going the wrong way aren't they like conveyor belts so yeah you've got to run against yeah. the conveyor belt yeah so he'd do yeah. this big build up. Or well, obviously we've spoken about his statue, you know, he's getting ready to go up the travelator. You've got five thousand people going, he's never gonna do this. This is gonna end in tears. This is gonna be awful. And he runs run <laughs> towards it and then he'd go straight up the middle where there's no conveyor. Yes! And he'd run straight yes! up the middle. And it's you know, it's it's a nice physical gag. And there was one night yes. where <laughs> for the recording, they'd polished the whole travelator, all the bits that weren't the conveyor, they'd polished it. So it shone on the camera <laughs> and he's there gearing up and he goes, and he, he ran straight up the middle, fell flat on his face. Cause they'd polished it. He broke his ankle and he was, he was in the, he was in a, he was in a cast that. for months. Yeah.
0: I don't remember that. Yeah. Gee <laughs> God, how did I forget
1: that? Oh my <laughs> God. But he's got some great, he had some great stories about, you know, being on tour at like Sheffield arena and, mm. you know, a, a bunch of blokes in a horrible Sheffield pub set upon him because him and his mate wanted to play the pool table. And these mm. locals wouldn't let him, even though, you know, they'd put their pound down on the table and everything. And, yes. you know, them trying to square up and then six gladiators walking in. And dad being like, yeah, no, go ahead, we'll uh, see how it goes. <laughs> Just it was such an
0: amazing time. Yeah. And another amazing time was, of course, on Family Fortunes, which I spoke with Les Dennis and Roger Edwards about a couple of weeks ago on various podcasts. Your dad was an integral part of the Family Fortunes team, which made behind the scenes, which made that show such a success. And I think that was part of your dad's appeal as well. Not only his ability to warm up the crowd in a special kind of way for a television show, but also he became such an integral member of the team. So much so that if he made a suggestion, uh, they'd listen to him. And very often put that idea or that joke into practice. Mm. And I think that's that's what gave your dad that kind of speciality. That's what made him such a special person in in television and in warm-up, which is why he he, he is, it remains in my view, the doyen of, of all comedy. He was also a very, very good comedy had a com- good comedy brain, and he was very, very articulate when expressing television ideas. For example, um when Roger Edwards and I used to drive to uh, your dad's house in in Banbury, and we would sit down and we would fashion a few ideas for for game shows uh, mm. and also television shows in a desperate attempt to try and get something away. And I remember your dad having this idea. Uh, it was called "What's it, What About This Co?" It's, it's "What's in the Loft?" So I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well, we've got stuff in the loft." Uh, Is any of it valuable? And I thought, oh, I don't know. And Roger said, oh, that's a good idea, that. That's a good idea. And I said, okay. So we typed it up and we sent it off. And it came back saying, nah, no, thank you. I don't know who we sent it to. Then sure enough, I want to say two years later, Cash in the Attic is on TV and it's a big hit. So it's a kind of a roundabout way of saying, actually, in comedy and in television, nobody knows what's going to work, you know. Yeah. And the great thing about your job now is that you're your own producer as a stand up. You're your own writer. You're your own director and you haven't got to listen to some idiot in a suit who's going to sit there in judgment saying, Oh, no, that doesn't work. You're going to say, well, it's nothing to do with you. I'm doing it anyway. And that, that kind of freedom must help you from a career point of view and from a mental point of view as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As a definitely. Performer yeah i think so um i mean it's still there's still the trap in there that always has been you know where if you have a good idea if if you do want to try and get it away for tv there's still certain uh, avenues that you have to go down with it and there's still a very good chance that they'll tell you it's it's a no good idea and it's a non-starter and then two years later it'll appear with a different name and that's i don't think that will ever change but you're right there's there's definitely more scope to do what you want in terms of online and you know, you can put whatever you yeah. want out there as like a pilot. Oh, look, I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, suddenly I've I've got a voice on this podcast, and who would have thought that? You know, yeah.
1: it's uh, isn't it? you haven't got to answer to anyone. There's no, you haven't got a have exactly that or yeah, exactly that. Your other job
0: is actually incredibly, I think, as glamorous. No, I'm going to say more glamorous than being a a comic on stage and getting laughs. Because you work in the video industry, uh, you're a video editor, uh, you're also a director, and you're also uh, an action cameraman. And when I say action cameraman, I've seen footage uh, on screen that you've shot hanging out of a helicopter with your camera, taking dramatic, fantastic, colourful shots of yachts ploughing through the ocean around um, uh, off, off the coast of Monte Carlo. I mm. mean, Jack. Yeah. It does not get better than that,
1: does it? <laughs> yeah, you'd think. I mean, I, I have to say, I didn't last uh, too long in that gig because, I mean, it turns out helicopters are frightening. And it, <laughs> it, it only took a few of those where I was like, you know what? You see too many of these going down in the news for me to be doing this on a regular basis, you know. So, yeah, it was that was really fun, but it was kind of always. I've always without wanting to sound too much like a, you know, entitled. Young, you know, brat. I've I've always wanted to do what I want to do, and mm-hmm. so I, I I never wanted to to do a nine to five job or anything. It always like that that looks really cool, so I want to go and do that. And so I, I I did that the uh filming yachts and which was brilliant and they were amazing people and it was really really fun. But I thought mm. I, I just and this this all loops back around, I guess, psychologically to I wanted to do live stuff. And I, I've been mm. to concerts and and I'd always seen the, the camera operators and the big screens and I thought, God, I bet that's a fun job. That'll be good. So I kind of set about that and and working my way for, you know, sort of three or four years trying to get contact. And eventually I I got my way into it. So yeah, sort of doing music touring festivals. And it's, it's brilliant. Mm. And then it, it was only January, February last year with the first two months where I'd made a full-time wage from, from stand-up. So mm. I had one more music tour in the diary and then it was like, well, that's, that's it then. Full-time stand-up, February 2020, this is going to happen. And then obviously absolutely nothing happened and we're back here. But... <laughs> yes, yeah. But it's a great job and I, I, I love doing it.
0: Yeah. But yeah, quite rightly, I think you love comedy more.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and it's, interestingly, it does. I was talking to, I did, um, I did a, a few Kylie Minogue shows on the, on mm. that last tour, and the director, who's brilliant and a, a really good friend of mine, we were talking about it, and he said it, it, it definitely. People who do like he has that same kind of thing inside him that I have with stand up because he's, if you're directing the cameras and you're putting this stuff on the big screen that thousands of people are seeing you can you know in a non weird way you can manipulate their emotions and you can make them feel you know you can make them feel happy you can make them feel something and you can and that's that's an amazing you know it's amazing thing to be able to do that and you can see thousands of people react to what you're doing and it's just a different way of of kind of doing it I suppose you stand up is yes yeah
0: um i'm i'm going to uh, reflect on emotions now uh, because your dad uh, was diagnosed out of the blue with pancreatic cancer uh, and his i don't his know if prognosis... it was necessarily
1: totally out of the blue after 40 years of drinking and smoking it <laughs> 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 would have been weirder things it would have been weirder <laughs> if he'd been diagnosed with being incredibly good at running <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, thank you for that. You've thrown me completely with that, that genius <laughs> reaction. <laughs> and I, I can, we can both hear your dad now chuckling with that smoky laugh that he had at that remark. I, and okay, it was, and it, it was your dad's illness then, which, which prompted a whole bunch of us, myself, Roger Edwards, Brian Levison to mooch up, uh, on a fairly frequent basis. To, to Banbury to be with your dad and chat and chew the fat and, and comedy and stuff and we'd have lunch at the alley and rah 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 and it was you know it was good fun that was that was great. There was one one particular two, two 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 occasions your dad called me up because uh, I'd talking about finding my my dad my dad was a plumber and finding his tools and cleaning up his rusty tools and your dad said to me he said oh my dad's got some rusty tools he said how'd you clean him up and I said well I'll come up and I'll show you how to do it. Dip him in vinegar and you run him through the, 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 um, the wire wool and all that kind of stuff, you know. And we had a terrific afternoon not talking comedy. We was talking about, we were talking about tools and stuff like that. And it, it was very interesting to chat with your dad on subjects that weren't vaguely amusing or indeed about his illness. It took it out of him, took it out of himself entirely. Then the second time he called me when he was very, very, he, he'd gone into terminal decline and he mm. called me up and he said come up friday Cole." and i said should i bring the boys he said no come by yourself i want you to come by yourself okay so i went up to see him on the friday and we chatted and stuff and i'll be honest with you i hadn't seen him for a tiny while and i was shocked at how he had declined and we chatted about stuff and he said i've got something for you i've got because uh, your sister works at a you know and a, 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 a high high end fashion outfit and aftershaves and perfumes mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and he gave me a bottle of this Chanel Bleu and said, "That's for you." And whenever I am doing a gig like this with you, or I'm doing a a gig, or indeed I'm standing standing in front of a steampunk crowd, I always make sure I wear, wear Chanel Bleu. Mm. That, that bottle that your dad bought me because he lives with me. It did me no damn good at the front of the steampunk crowd by action to add <laughs> that <laughs> magic elixir. <laughs> but I've still got it and I still use it. And your dad said to me, uh, in the morning, he said, Matt has just gone off to Banbury station to pick up Harry Hill because Harry's going to come this afternoon. Mm. He said, stay and say hello to Harry. And I said, no. I'm going to go now, because your time with Harry is precious time, and you don't want the distraction of me being there as well, precious time with Harry because your dad was very close with Harry Hill, and Harry Hill I remember being very good to your dad, so you went off to the station and I went home. That was the last time I saw your dad because he died I think on the Monday yes, yeah, 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 that be right. okay. yeah, so now I'm not going to I'm not going to end on a on a harp on a a sad note because I need to spin forward to what I consider to be one of the finest light entertainment events I've ever been to in all my life. It was better than any Royal Variety show, Mm. which was your dad's funeral.
1: Yeah, it was a great gig. Banbury Creme. Oh,
0: my goodness me.
1: Harry floated the idea of taking it on tour. (laughs) Yes,
0: it was so good. (laughs) Jeff Stevenson stood up and tore the balls off the crowd. Uh, Bobby Davro stood up. Ripped them apart. Harry got up and did a bit. Rick Sanders and the Bobby Bragg, Bobby Bragg musical ensemble played stuff. It it lasted two and a half hours, didn't it?
1: It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite long, wasn't it? Yeah. It was. was, And then you got up and did your, you strutted your stuff.
0: And you then did, you know, and you know where I'm heading with this. And I'd like you to tell the crowd this. You then did what I considered still to be the greatest joke most perfect joke in every particular that I've ever seen in my life. The timing and the circumstances were jaw-swingingly brilliant. So tell us, tell us.
1: Well, it it was probably, I guess it would have been a week or two before he, he died. And he only said it to me, but he said, what I want you to do is when the coffin sat there, he said, I want you to get a giant best before sticker. And just put that on the end with the date that I go on it. And so I said, right, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And I thought, well, I'm locked, I'm locked into that now. And I've, I've, I've kind of, <laughs> obviously, because you know what it's like, it, when, you know, you've obviously he died and it's really sad and you've, you know, you're trying to deal with it and you've also got a phone up. You know, we have phone up. I've phoned up hundreds of people, you know, letting them know and, and it, you know, it's, it was so draining and took forever. And by the time the funeral came round, it was almost like, I just, you know, just get through. And I, I forgot, I forgot about the sticker. And so I held everyone up and was like, I'm really sorry, we're just going to have to wait a minute. And I had to just go on the computer and I knocked it up and I printed it off and I cut it out. And mum was like, what are you doing? What, <laughs> what is that? And I was like, I've, I said that I would and I, I've got to do it now. So, yeah, so I, I went up and said a bit at the end, and then, yeah, the last thing uh, the last thing was just to, to walk, walk by and just stick that on the end of his coffin, and, and yeah, it, was a, it got a got big laugh. It was nice.
0: Best before the 11th of November 2016. Annoyingly, and- you can't take
1: it into the clubs, which is a shame, because it, <laughs> it was... A-
0: but what it was, it, it was the perfect exit line for your dad. I mean, if you, yeah, you, yeah. go off with a round of applause, you know, and to, to be sent off with the sound of laughter ringing in your ears must have been, I, I, I'm sure it was absolutely wonderful for him. And uh, what a wonderful occasion for you, your man uh, and your sister, Becky, that, to have that acknowledgement that your dad was so universally loved and regarded and respected.
1: Yeah, I, well, I think that's probably, that day was a huge, huge reason why I I fully thought, you know what, this is what this is what I need to do, because that that day you I yeah mean, you saw the power of laughter and comedy in that because that was, I mean, on the face of it, it's an unbelievably sad day. I didn't cry. I hmm. I don't think there was the, the only people that left, you know, with tears was because they'd been laughing. It was it was such a funny afternoon. And everybody just, and then it was back to yeah. the pub. And everyone was just, they were all talking comedy. They were all talking about, the, you know, the funny stories. And it just made, everything was just yes. made a million times better. And it was, yeah, it's just, it's so healing, isn't it? As a, as a thing. Undoubtedly. And
0: it was, well, lovely is that, they, that, that, I suppose what you're saying is the catalyst, which drove you to think, yeah, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make this Absolutely, my career yeah. now. And I think that's it's a wonderful legacy that your your dad has inspired. What about dates in the diary now, from a comedy point of view? Any dates which might be materialising in that those blank sheets of paper, which are everyone's diary? Yeah.
1: Well, I've got um, October and November are fairly well full now, which is great. Mm. So I've, um, yeah, I'll still be doing bits of, of camera stuff to see me through. So I've got a couple of festivals and. Um, which is fine. You know, it's like I said from the start, I, I want to do what I want to do. And it, that's, that's no less a fun job. So yeah, it will be nice just to get back out amongst people again. And I can't wait. I'm I'm so excited to to get back on the road again in October and, and just, you know, just drive around the country and do nothing in particular apart from gig. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly that. And, uh, where can we find out details, uh, of the gigs that are coming? I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are going to want to see Matt Bragg, uh, in action. Where can we get those details? Uh, What's your website,
1: Matt? Matt uh, Mattbraggcomedy.com, Um, and then also Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all Matt Bragg comedy.
0: Excellent. And I do urge everyone if you uh, to click on Matt's website because there's a, there's a beautiful six minute video. Of Matt in action, and and you will see. I think one of the most significant young performers, starting out on what I think is going to be a very very successful career, uh, and I wish you well That's for it. Kind, I really Carly. do. Thank I've you. got enormous faith and confidence in what you're doing because you're going about it the right way, and uh, you know everyone loved your dad, and everyone loves you.
1: Oh, it's very kind, Cole. Yeah, thank you. All
0: right, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate your time. I've taken up an hour and. 20 minutes of your time. Thank you for, for coming on. My pleasure. Yeah, Thank you for having me. Oh, gee, I, d- I didn't want to do it without you. Thank you so <laughs> much for coming on. Uh, okay. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.